Welcome to another episode of Marketing Made Me Do It. Today we're talking about brand disasters. We have two really impactful stories to share in completely different industries. And you'll find out what brands do to recover from major fails. And, and we're talking major, like major scale, because I mean, there are small disasters almost every day. These are big ones. Stay tuned. I bought a pair of shoes that I didn't need. The same ones I saw on my Instagram feed. My feet hurt real bad and my bank account's dry. I made a bad decision and I don't know why. Some people may say I blew it, but marketing made me do it. Welcome to Marketing Made Me Do It. I'm one of your hosts, Sydney. And I'm the other one, Sylvia. And if it's your first time listening, this podcast is kind of a new podcast, I guess, that aims to teach consumers about how marketing impacts all of our lives and everyday decision making in order to empower consumers to make the best decisions with their money. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, yeah, we're still kind of new, especially, you know, we took yeah. a week off now and it's, it's just getting back into the swing of things. So every time we take a week off, we relearn how to podcast. So maybe, <laughs> to, yeah. maybe that's the like, whether or not we're old is when we figure out how to do this. Without questioning yeah. where, where this cord goes. <laughs> yeah. Where does this cord go? What am I doing? Um, so we always start each episode with talking about what's new in your life, um, what's new in marketing. And what has marketing made you do since we last talked? So Sylvia, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I am, um, you know, thinking back to our scarcity marketing episode, I don't think I've learned much from it, apparently, because um, the Prime Day deals mm. have gotten me. Uh, they were October 10th and 11th. I almost missed them. But then I watched a YouTube video where somebody had mentioned their Prime mm. haul, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> I almost forgot something. And, you know, it's very convenient because obviously great deals for only two days, if some even less, just a couple mm -hmm. hours. And, you know, my fiance's birthday is coming up. Christmas is coming up. Yes, of course, we also have Black Friday as another opportunity down the line. But the timeline is, was just right to get a couple of birthday presents for me and my fiance. So I'm awaiting a package. <laughs> so you can't share what those are, what your haul is on this recording. Um... Let me think. Does he well, listen to the podcast? He, he doesn't. So I think I can share. I got him shoes that were like are really nice leather shoes all day kind of weather shoes um, for 50% off. Like instead that's of $150, awesome. I only spent like 50 plus tax, obviously. But yeah, um, that's pretty good. And then I got my Halloween costume, uh, which is going to be uh, Barbie from the 80s because we have a themed Halloween party at work this year. And so I was racking my brain and that's as good as it's going to get this year. It's going to be fun. Maybe we'll share some pictures. If anyone from work is listening, I'm going as an astronaut Barbie and I got the pink costume. So please don't buy that. <laughs> I want to be the only astronaut Barbie. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's too funny. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go as 80s Barbie. Um, yeah. If you want to compete with me, Game on. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I saw the Prime Day commercials. Did you see those? I did not. They were cheesy. Really? Yeah. I, th you know, as a marketer, 
when you watch a commercial, sometimes it's like you're evaluating commercials. And so it's kind of a fun thing to do. These were cheesy. So it was, it was a person being delivered an Amazon Prime, Prime Day package. And he was in like his PJs and looked like he had just woken up. But it, there was a crowd outside of his house and everyone started like applauding like he had won an award. And he, then he started posing, you know, really cool. Like, look how strong I am. You know, the cool poses. It was so cheesy. For ordering from Prime? It made me remember, I guess, the commercial, but only because I thought, wow, this is cheesy. They could do better <laughs> with their marketing budget. They could do better. Wow. Now I have to look it up after. Yeah. I did not see them, but I also don't really, I don't know. I don't even Unless... know where I saw a commercial. I think maybe on YouTube because I don't watch TV with commercials. I was going to say, I don't watch TV with commercials. So the only way I would have seen it was YouTube. And I'm not going to lie. I'm, I could have seen it and just not remembered because I see a lot of commercials on YouTube that I just don't pay attention to. I don't think it was memorable either. The only reason, again, I'm remembering is because I thought, I just remember thinking, wow, Amazon with your budget, and this is what you come up with. Come wow. on. That's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, um, that's what marketing made me do is just, again, those deals that are just nice. hard to pass by. What about you, Sydney? I couldn't think of anything marketing made me do, but um, similar to what you did last time, I'm kind of switching the answer to this question to be whatever I want to talk about. <laughs> and so have you seen an Ado the Adobe Project Primrose on your feed lately? No, I've seen Adobe commercials. Um, I don't think I've seen the Primrose, though. What is it? Project Primrose. I've just seen this on my feed like the last two days. So this must be kind of new. But it's a new product launched by Adobe. And so Adobe did one of those. I don't know what they're called. You might know those big presentations to show some of their new products this past week. Mm -hmm. And this is one of their products. And it's this pretty basic bitch dress. <laughs> Can't think of another way to explain it, but it's, it's a strapless mid-length, like mid-calf dress that is covered in these silver scales. And the scales move to create different patterns along the dress. And so they move in an instant. I'll play you the video real quick. Why not? <laughs> Introducing Project Primrose, a digital dress that brings fabric to life. Unlike traditional clothing, uh, which is static, Primrose allows me to refresh my look in a moment. So Adobe hasn't figured out how to design dresses yet, I would say, but imagine if they partnered with like an actual design house with this kind of textile, what they could accomplish. That would be, you know what that made me think of? It made me think of that scene in uh, the tribute, uh, Tribute von Panem, Mocking, not Mockingbird. Yeah, for sure. And even Primrose, isn't that someone's name? Yeah, exactly. In, mm -hmm. But where she like changes her dress by just spinning, you know, yeah. that's what it made me think of. That's insane. I wonder if they did that intentionally because I saw a few people say the same thing. Like just in comments on my on my Instagram feed, people were talking about it. And the number one complaint is it's not a pretty dress. It's just, again, it's you wore this to your prom in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> and even the scales, you know, the scales is cool how they flip up and down and that changes the texture on the dress. But even the scales, it's like, oh, you, could, you could have been more unique. But maybe there's a future where graphic designers like myself can become fashion designers 
for dresses. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Perfect. So what's our topic today, Sylvia? That's, you know, I should probably figure out that segue (laughs) since it's your topic today. But um, yeah, we're talking about brand disasters. This topic was an award for a giveaway that we had. Yeah. Yeah. Quick, maybe recap. We did a game, I guess, on social media where Sydney and I, we went to the Barbie movie and we asked you guys to tell us how many brand mentions you you thought we would identify watching the movie and we had one winner who was very close granted the only winner (laughs) kind of the only applicant you guys you could have chosen an episode what are you doing what are you doing with your lives (laughs) but um yeah so your mom Mm -hmm. got to choose today's episode topic yeah and just to just in case you missed it on social media how many were there there were like 27 we counted i think 20 yeah 27 28 27 to 28 uh, brand spots within the Barbie movie. And we only counted each brand once. So even if it's shown multiple times, like Chanel was, like Chevy was, we only counted it once. So there was 27 to 28. What was your favorite? I think the Chanel one was my, was probably my favorite because they did it mm-hmm. a couple of times in a really smart way. Like, I don't know. They did it in a subtle but smart way, I feel like. Yeah. My favorite was the Duolingo one because I just love, you know, if you don't have Duolingo on your app, you won't know. But the, you know, the bell when you get it right, they had in the, in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked up on that one. That was you. Yeah. Um, okay, so what is a brand disaster? For this episode, we are defining that as basically just a major disruption, a major fail for a brand. And... Yeah, we've got a couple of great examples. Um, but a brand disaster could be something that just brands don't recover from. Just a major fail, whether it's in the way that they're communicating, whether it's in the way that their product or service operates. It's just they miss the mark big time. And it's a it's a disaster. Yeah. It could also be in just the way they behave, right? Or a statement mm-hmm. that they make um, that might not be ethical. Mm-hmm. Some brands don't make it through brand disasters they just fall off the the radar they fall off the cliff and they're done mm-hmm. in this case um at least for my example i don't know what sylvia is talking about there's some interesting actions that were done from a marketing side but this topic made me think also about uh public relations so sylvia you're more experienced in public relations than i am so can you tell us what is the difference between marketing and public relations yeah To keep it simple, there are many components, I feel like, that uh, go into it. But marketing ultimately is introducing a product or service to your target audience uh, with the ultimate goal of either brand awareness or, you know, actually driving sales. So to really market something for a conversion action, if you will, at the end. Versus public relations is more of the, is more the focus on the reputation of the brand. So it is making sure that your brand maintains a positive reputation and in instances of brand disasters, whether that's, you know, caused by one person and within a huge company, whether that's caused by the person that is the, like, is the brand, for instance, an influencer or a star, mm-hmm. PR is really a way to turn their bad behavior or their disaster around, ideally, um, and shed good light on a, a company or a brand. And 
I would argue every solid marketing strategy has a PR component. And in my example, that's kind of what I found as well is the PR defined the communication and how, how this disaster was communicated, but there was a marketing component to back it up. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of that beautiful way that they mesh. Yeah. I'm curious to hear Sydney, what is your brand? What's the story there? I'm going to take you back to 1993. Were you alive in 1993? I was by like four months, three months. Three months, four months. Awesome. Um, I was very young in 1993. Can't remember, remember much about it. My sources for this are thank you, Wikipedia, Vimeo. There's a fantastic video we can post on social, BillMarler.com, and a Jack in the Box fam fandom. So those are my sources. On January 12th, 1993, a pediatric gastroenterologist named Phil Tarr at the University of Washington in Seattle's Children's Hospital, filed a report with the Washington State Department of Health about a cluster of children with some really unique symptoms of diarrhea and, oh God, hemol hemolytic uremic syndrome, also known as HUS, which I'm going to use from this point forward, <laughs> HUS, that were likely caused by E. coli. And so he was concerned. He saw a lot of children with kind of these same symptoms. And so he contacted Dr. John Kobayashi, the Washington State epidemiologist, who started trying to figure out what was going on, what was causing these cases. Eventually, these cases were linked to undercooked hamburger patties. And those hamburger patties were linked to Jack in the Box. Oops. Oops. And so Dr. Kobayashi recalled in an interview, he said that, I knew that when Phil called me, for him to say, this is something I've never seen before, that that was a big red flag. Doctors were worried about this trend of, of mostly children coming in with these same symptoms that were pretty severe. A day after Phil Tarr kind of raised that red flag for this E. coli outbreak, on January 13th, 1993, a nine-year-old named Brianne Kiner was rushed to Children's Hospital in Seattle, also suffering from diarrhea and stomach pain. She had been ill for a few days. Tests revealed that she was, in fact, suffering from E. coli after eating, you guessed it, probably an undercooked hamburger at a local jack-in-the-box. So most of this story is centered around Washington, which is where my family stems from. We were living there at the time. And within a week of treatment at the hospital, Brianne slipped into a coma, uh, during which doctors had to remove her large intestine and they hooked her heart, lungs, and kidneys up to machines to keep them functioning. Oh, so my she gosh. was in a coma. Her parents were, you know, asked to make a decision whether to take her off of basically life support at that time. Um, luckily, they declined that because after five weeks, she came out of a coma. But she still was dealing with this E. coli outbreak. So after five weeks, she was unable to walk since she'd been in a coma for so long. It took her a month and a half to be able to walk again, um, and a lot of the effects of her E. coli outbreak were permanent. She suffered from diabetes, asthma, brain damage, and oh, future kidney gosh. problems. So from was, eating one burger. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. It was extremely severe, traumatizing for her. I can imagine her parents going through that as well. Um, it was a miracle she survived. I think it's reported as like one of the most awful cases of an E. coli outbreak where someone recovered. Mm -hmm. That was all just from eating a hamburger. 
and imagine that's, that yeah. like even as a parent you know you want to feed your kid you go mm-hmm. to a normal you know fast food restaurant at the time and then something like that happens that's terrifying yeah so scary and it wasn't the only outbreak that happened so ultimately 73 jack-in-the-box locations were linked to an E. coli outbreak in 1993. All within Washington? Not all within Washington, but uh, 602 of those cases were from Washington. So most were from Washington. The bacteria sickened over 700 people in four states. Wow. And led to 171 hospitalizations and ultimately four deaths of of young children. Oh, my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. So how did Jack in the Box handle that? It was a PR nightmare. It was, this is a brand disaster where, you know, 45 people were hospitalized of those 700 infected. 38 people had serious kidney problems. 21 required dialysis. Four children died. Most of these people were from Washington. So this is terrible. Can you imagine doing marketing for a brand in this situation? It's just awful. Um, And so in the year and a half, not surprising, after this outbreak, Jack in the Box had lost about $160 million from court cases and from lost sales. I I mean, I personally wouldn't want to go to Jack in the Box after that. $160,000? Did I say $160,000? $160 million. Okay, you might have said that. I (laughs) was like, but (laughs) even so, $160 million is not... But this is 1993 money. Okay, fair. So it's probably like $500 million now. Yeah, fair. Okay. Half a bill. I think a candy bar back then was like a quarter yeah no so. there it's definitely inflated since then um so yeah jack in the box their reputation was completely tarnished who would want to eat there afterwards i personally i suffered from an e coli outbreak in 2015 from chipotle and it took me years to get over the mental damage <laughs> that they had done because it was i was sick for three days and luckily i wasn't hospitalized and i think that that E. coli outbreak, more people suffered, but nobody died. Wow. So that was a big difference. But it took me probably two years or so before I would eat Chipotle again. I probably couldn't. <laughs> I love Chipotle. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I had gone there like once a month, you know, so two years was substantial. Do you know how old the brand Jack in the Box was at that time? They were started in the 1950s, so pretty, quite old. Pretty yeah, quite established. Okay. Mm-hmm. What did Jack in the Box do? Um, so I'm going to go back. This might not make sense now, but I'm going to go back to 1980 and show you this commercial from Jack in the Box. What are you doing to the Jack in the Box clown? He's going bye-bye, lady. But he's so cute. Cute was the old Jack in the Box restaurants. Now we stand for great new food. Like our new Chicken Supreme, juicy all-white meat chicken, two kinds of cheese on a toasted whole wheat bun. The food is better at the box. The food is better at the box. Waste them. Oh, that's terrible timing. (laughs) So that was actually in 1980. So that was 13 years before the outbreak. But in 1980, Jack in the Box decided kind of to do some sort of like a rebrand that basically they wanted to change the way people perceived them. They had the really recognizable to us circle head of Jack of the box with like the smiley face. What would you call that? I have no idea. Like a clown. I, I would call not, it not maybe like a clown, but just with a really circular head. Yeah. You know that, that thing when you like, <laughs> 
she's doing a motion of cranking, <laughs> cranking something out of a box. And that's, oh yeah, yeah. That's normally that's, true. that's what I'm talking about. A popular toy from the 50s. <laughs> Not a popular toy these days, but that's exactly what a child So it's the creepy head that pops out and scares children. Yeah. And so in the 1980s, they were competing with McDonald's at that time. And McDonald's had the fun clown and McDonald's was dominating in the fast food chain restaurant arena. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to differentiate themselves from them. And they wanted to focus on quality food, quality. I probably can't say quality ingredients with what happened next, but quality food more adult food mm-hmm. and so they blew up the jack-in-the-box poppy thing i still think it's a clown <laughs> it's fucking scary poppy clown um they blew it up in the commercials so that was in 1980 and the reason i brought you to that is i'm going to show you another commercial from 1994 this is the year after the e coli outbreak hello i'm jack founder of jack-in-the-box perhaps you remember when i was fired Ever since that setback, I vowed to one day regain my rightful place as head of Jack in the Box. Today, thanks to the miracle of plastic surgery, I'm back and ready to make Jack in the Box better than ever. I take that back. He kind of reminds me of like a clown snowman. Okay, yeah, <clears throat> Clown Snowman. So in 1994, Jack in the Box released the campaign. It's called Jack's Back. And what happened in that commercial was Jack, the head of that poppy thing, is now on a human body thanks to plastic surgery. And so he walks into the Jack in the Box HQ. He is obviously a, bit, a little bit salty that they blew him up in 1980. He showed that in the commercial. And so he takes his revenge out on them by blowing up the boardroom of the HQ. Did I miss anything? Nope, that's, that sums it up pretty well. And the campaign is Jack's back. And so they basically wanted to show the public that they were no longer that company that poisons people. Um, and the response to the commercial was kind of hot and cold. Mostly cold. Because people didn't like the fact that he had just shown like a act of terrorism, mm-hmm. blowing up a room full of people on a commercial, especially when time at a time when there were bombings happening across the United States. Again, it makes me wonder, like, who's who's creating these commercials? Like, how much research do they do? So I did research. I actually think the commercials are really effective and they are what saved part of what saved this company. Because they really did need to make an impact. Like, we are not who we used to be. Um, And this was their way, literally, of showing, like, the people who made your children poisoned are no longer here. We blew them up. Um, So I think they needed to make a statement. (laughs) It's pretty violent. It's pretty violent. The person who did that was named Rick Sittig. And he is actually known as the man who saved Jack in the Box with this campaign. He's quoted as saying, I thought it would be fun. And instead of just making Jack a clown, you order through to bring him back as the company founder and to treat him as you would treat any other company founder on TV, whether it's Lee Iacocca or Bill Gates. Um, And this campaign would be run by Rick Siddig. He's actually also the voice of Jack. And it would go on to be the longest running fast food commercial campaign ever 
with over 400 commercials um, at an average of 22 per year. Wow. Yeah. So this was the beginning of that. Um, He was also asked about the E. coli outbreak that Chipotle had in 2015. He was asked, like, how would you respond if you were managing this public perception? And he mentioned that, you know, Jack in the Box, they advertised a lot on TV and radio at the time. And so every time you saw Jack in the Box during that outbreak, people re-remembered what happened Mm -hmm. with their outbreak. And so one of the first things that they did is they removed their ads from TV and radio. They didn't want people talking about Jack in the Box in any capacity immediately. They also hired an expert in food safety, Dr. Dave Thino, who was regarded as the preeminent food safety expert in the country. Um, And today, because of these efforts in 1993, Jack in the Box their food standards are more stringent than anybody else in the industry. So Hmm. they actually made some real changes to the way that they sourced their meat, the way that they cook their meat to prevent this from happening ever again. Dang. So they were kind of the um, industry leader in terms of food safety after that. Absolutely. They are known kind of as setting new standards across the food industry. There were also some other really positive impacts from it's terrible because the whole thing is awful right. in 1983, but because it was so bad, it triggered some responses for the food industry as a whole. Yeah. And so one of the things that happened is at the time in 1993, the federal regula- regulations for cooking meat and cooking hamburgers was they needed to be cooked to a minimum of 140 degrees. Okay. And now if you know anything about cooking meat, cooking burgers, you'll know that, the, that that is too low to remove E. coli. E. coli can be alive until 155 degrees. So federally, they increase the regulation that meat needs to be cooked to 155 de- degrees mm-hmm. to remove E. coli. Because of this with Jack in the Box, the USDA also introduced safe food handling labels for packaged raw meat and poultry in supermarkets. So that had never really happened before that there were the risks of undercooked meat on our labels. And they also started an education campaign alerting consumers with the risks of eating undercooked meat. And then finally, to bring it back to Brienne, a lawyer named William Marler represented Brienne and her family in a claim against Jack in the Box and their parent company, Foodmaker, and they obtained $15.6 million in a settlement on her behalf. And so that... And did every, essentially every affected family um, have a right to claim kind of a settlement or? Absolutely. The same lawyer also successfully resolved cases on behalf of more than 100 victims of the outbreak. At the time, I guess in in Washington, there were law commercials that focused on like, have you or anyone you know been poisoned by E. coli from Jack in the Box? Like it was that big of a deal. Wow. I mean, that's a fast response for from the lawyer yeah. side of things. So that's the story of Jack in the Box and their E. coli poisoning. Obviously, Jack in the Box turned it around. I do think the marketing cam- campaign had a lot to do with that because, mm-hmm. again, they, they did the right actions right after they tried to make it right. They haven't had an issue, at least from what I saw when researching since then. Mm-hmm. And they're regarded as just a ver- very safe place to eat now. But... 
yeah, they, they really struggled in 1993. To bring it back to PR and that public relations standpoint and, um, I guess, brand image, did Jack in a Box release, like, multiple statements or... Do you know if anything? See anything? Well, maybe it wasn't that big of a thing back in the day, but maybe not because you know, one thing that Rick Siddig said is that it is harder these days to come back from something like that because now you have social media and you have things that go viral. And in 1993, you had basically the timeline of the the news cycle. Right. That was your your issue, and so he, I think he said like. 60 days was kind of that timeline, that space of negative PR, but then it would move on to something else. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why it, it's much harder to mark a market, but then also to be um, a public relations specialist mm-hmm. these days because you have so many outlets. The internet obviously is yeah. much more accessible than it was in the 1990, 1993. <laughs> I just remember the AOL that we had. <laughs> we're gonna google when the internet started stay tuned (laughs) it was april 19 april 30th 1993 the world wide web was released into the public domain so at that time of the outbreak there was not the internet there was not nobody probably (laughs) could afford the internet (laughs) yeah but um yeah Mine, that's mine. My example is a little bit more recent, and it definitely um, has more consequences and longer consequences. Sylvia, I'm excited to hear what you have today. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna move a little bit up in time, I guess, talking about 2015. Are you aware, or are you have you followed the Volkswagen scandal, emissions scandal? can't say that I have. Well, I, it's definitely one of the bigger ones that was a, I would say, almost probably worldwide scandal um, that was detected in the United States. Okay. And so what happened is on September 18th, 2015, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, issued a notice of violation of the Clean Air Act to, Volk- I just have to say Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> to Volkswagen AG and Audi AG <laughs> and the Volkswagen Group of America, Inc. So just let's just call it Volkswagen. Volkswagen. V-dub. V-dub. Thanks. It's going to make it easier. <laughs> and so the notice alleges that Volkswagen... V-dub. <laughs> so this is so awkward as a German to say this in English. Okay. How do you say it in German? Volkswagen. Just say it the German way. It's fine. We'll know what you mean. Um, yeah, I, it still sounds the same. It's it hard though because I'm like I'm just talking English and then yeah. having this sporadic German word is is kind of hard. I'm gonna try and get it together here. All right. So the notice <laughs> alleges that VW installed a software in its model years 2019 to 2015 two-liter diesel cars that circumvents EPA emission standards. I feel like I did hear about this. I would be surprised if you yeah. haven't. Um. So. What this means really is that they, VW, sold vehicles in America that had a defeat device or software, if you will, installed in their diesel engines um, that could detect when they were being tested and when they were being, you know, tested in laboratory emissions testings. They changed the performance 
Uh, so they improved essentially the results huh. in these testings. Sounds illegal to me. <laughs> yes. And so um, this essentially caused that, you know, during those tests, the vehicles passed the emissions test within U.S. standards. But in actuality, you know, in everyday driving, they emitted 40 times wow. more nitrogen oxide than in these emission testings. And so if that doesn't call for trouble, then I don't know what. Yeah, I want. Was it too expensive to fix the uh, emission? Why? I, I just think it was really hard to probably get it down to meet mm. the standards. Because um, they introduced, I think, around that time, don't make me lie, I would have to look it up, uh, the diesel engine cars to the U.S. market. And U.S. have, you know, especially California, have very strict regulations. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably was just really hard to get the nitrogen oxide emissions under or within those regulations. And so the way to do it was to install this software that hmm. during tests was like green light, everything's good to go. And obviously kind of frauding the whole is frauding the right word? I'm, ex I'm excited to see what, what the more expensive decision was. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, probably they could have uh, just spent some more time inventing and figuring it out before uh, introducing this into the market. But uh, obviously, this backfired hugely. Um, they, you know, launched major marketing campaigns that pushed the diesel cars in the U.S. But ultimately, what happened through this testing from EPA, they found over 482 cars in the U.S. only that had this software installed that were over emissions. And by 482, do you mean 482,000? <laughs> <laughs> Did I not specify? I meant 482,000. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> Thank goodness we share notes. Yeah. So, yeah. V-Dub's models impacted by this were, you know, like the Jetta, which is one of the most, I feel like one of the most popular models here in the United States, the Beetle, the Golf, the Passat. And so worldwide, V-Dub has admitted that about 11 million cars were impacted by the software. And, you know, that includes 8 million just in Europe. And like I said, it's, it's kind of like a defeat device that only kind of triggers during that testing phase. All of this was kind of you know, was detected around the 18th of September 2015 and on September 22nd the CEO president of the US branch of VW Michael Horn admitted that the firm was dishonest with US regulators and essentially said we have totally screwed up. Right. <laughs> At least he admitted it, you know, not mincing his words. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And I mean, this is such a big fudge up, if you will, that it has major impacts. Um, before we dive into the impacts, though, I have a couple of, of responses, if you will, to what actually happened in response to this detection by the U.S. EPA. And so... Michael Hahn said, we've to totally screwed up. Okay, this is all great and fun. And Martin Winterkorn, the former CEO of Volks uh, Volkswagen, said that the company had broken the trust of our customers and the public, which, yeah, they, mm -hmm. they definitely 
lost a good chunk of trust, not only I feel like into Volkswagen, but also just the diesel, you know, the diesel engine. So as a direct result of the scandal, he had resigned. I I think he was probably kicked out, but officially Mm -hmm. he resigned and was replaced by Matthias Müller, who was the former boss of Porsche, another German car manufacturer brand. And simultaneously, investigations were launched against 30 managers. So that was just within Volkswagen. And obviously, as the new CEO of Volkswagen, Matthias Müller, he has had to really turn around the game. Because, I mean, Volkswagen is such an established brand within Germany. You know, they were one of the first brands, really, the car brands Mm -hmm. that were established. And so... For Matthias Müller, he was like, my most urgent task is to win back the trust for the Volkswagen Group by leaving no stone unturned. So he really wanted to make sure to bring, you know, shed light on everything and to um, be transparent. And so they launched internal inquiries and so on and so forth. Now, what did this cost Volkswagen? Um, Initially, they put 6.7 billion euros aside to cover the cost. Um, But it really ended up with an like a German bank was doing some estimations and there are multiple sources for this, like whether it's um, NDR, Spiegel, Deutsche Tagesschau, BBC, you can definitely do some more research if you're interested or more invested into it. But they actually assumed the cost at the end of the day being around 30 billion euros. Wow. So huge financial impact for the brand. and. Um, we could break it down into like specific fines, but we would be sitting here until tomorrow. <laughs> um, but why did I say that this is a world war- worldwide scandal? Because obviously V-dubs are sold worldwide. And although it was started in the United States, other countries were like, okay, well, if the United States detected this, you know, we need to start looking into this as well. So I think South Korea had done, had launched investigations. Um, Italy had launched investigations. I think in Switzerland, it was completely halt, like sales were completely halted for a while. And other countries, you know, the UK, France, Canada, obviously Germany as well, have opened investigations. This was a huge, huge impact, but not only on VDub, but also in general, the German car manufacturing market as well. And so ultimately, 8.5 million cars in Europe were recalled, uh, which 2.4 million were from Germany or within Germany, 1.2 million in the UK and 500,000 in the US. Going forward in time to March 2017, uh, German authorities had raided the headquarters of, of Audi in Bavaria and Volkswagen in Wolfsburg. Audi is part of the Volkswagen Group. And in April 2019, Vintaquan, the former CEO, along with four other executives, were charged by prosecutors in Germany. And in August 2019, a district court ruled that updated software didn't uh, properly address the emissions either. So that... (laughs) was only part of it um you know the then ceo rupert stadler was also taken into custody in june 2018 and i mean this is like three years after the actual disaster so you can you know it's it's definitely taken its time to unravel Mm -hmm. and to unveil more and more documents especially also probably because of that raid um where they seize documents and all the things but yeah, Audi's then CEO, Rupert Stadler, was taken into German custody in June 2018 through October 2018. 
Then he was removed as the CEO, of course. And then in 2019, he was charged with fraud in Munich. And there was another manager, um, Oliver Schmidt, who was arrested and sentenced in Miami during a vacation. Oh, wow. This was also 2017. He has then since been released to Germany in 2020. Um, so he's completing his sentence in Niedersachsen right now. And then Martin Winterkorn, um, he, his trial date was set as of October 2020. Um, but pe- like, people are assuming that it's going to take years for it to resolve because there are like 104 negotiation dates set for that trial. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a brand disaster that has carried over years. Wow impacted many, many people, many countries, the brand. And so any questions so far? I just wonder how you recover from something like that. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think um, the brand is still recovering. It's definitely lost a lot of money. So going into the impact, you know, it's not only lost trust of, of customers, but like I said, also the trust in the manufacturing industry in Germany, um, given that that's a very, you know, a substantial industry. And we Germans take great pride in our vehicles. But what happened pretty much immediately after the scandal came to light is that the stock for Volkswagen fell drastically. And it, again, not only affected them, but it it affected the share prices of other German automakers. I think it's interesting that other manufacturers in Germany they're like, we did nothing wrong. Why are you blaming us or thinking we have anything to do with this? Well, interestingly enough, it actually came to light that it's not only Volkswagen who oh. has used these auto or these um, defeat devices within their diesel vehicles. Sim- similar, maybe not the same type of software that Volkswagen used, but Jeep, Ram, Opel, which was back when it was under GM, mm-hmm. and Mercedes-Benz actually used wow. similar software. So that kind of came to light as well. So I think it affected the German um, market as a whole because the trust was not only lost in VW, mm-hmm. but the other car manufacturers as well. And again, like it's not only impacting the brand itself, but it's impacting other brands that are investing into that brand. So for instance, um, Qatar, which is one of the biggest Volkswagen shareholders uh, with a 17% stake in the company not lost nearly $5 billion wow. as the stock value fell. So again, it's not only the brand oh. and the employees, mm-hmm. but it is also just the ripple effect that something like this can have. Have they done anything to rebuild consumer trust within their brand other than the you know, new CEO taking full responsibility? I mean, they released, I don't know how many statements, you know, online Mm -hmm. through transparency. I think they're trying to regain that trust by um, taking full responsibility, by being very um, transparent as to what they're doing. The biggest way they try to regain the trust is just through open and honest communication through the PR. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that Volkswagen took the ownership here. Because if they hadn't, and if, you know, all of the papers and everything came to light through the raid, which would have happened regardless, I think then they would have lost even more, Mm -hmm. you know, trust and potential to rebuild their brand. Yeah. So key takeaways from brand disasters. So I have the easy one today, which is it's pretty obvious, you know, a brand's decision the decisions they make within a disaster can make or break their future moving forward 
And again, if you are like a mom and pop shop with this kind of E. coli outbreak, I don't think you would make it. So I think you really do need to be mindful of the decisions you make from an ethical standpoint in your example, or cook your meat to a higher temperature, even if it makes it less tender (laughs) as a small business owner, because you just can't afford these same consequences. Yeah, I would agree. What else? What other takeaways? Um, I would say, and this is more because I'm in marketing as well. And I know sometimes you just make mistakes. You're human. Mm -hmm. And sometimes brands and people that lead brands make mistakes. I mean, they're also just people. And sometimes they just do the best that they can and it goes wrong. Sometimes they do something wrong knowing that they're doing something wrong and afterwards maybe realize the effect that it had and, and regret it. Um, sometimes they don't. And that's, that's a learning lesson, I guess, as well. But um, just because a brand has a misstep, I think you shouldn't necessarily give up on that brand altogether. I think, again, it very much depends on the severity and it depends on how the brand handles it, how the public relations is handled after the, the mistake or the disaster. But I think brands and people do deserve second chances. And I, off the top of my head, there's another quick example of Ulta, who the reader, I mean, everybody knows Ulta, um, <laughs> um, who sent out a marketing email last fall, I think it was, that was really dumb, a dumb mistake that probably wasn't caught in the process of, Q, you know, QAQCing it. But the title was like, come hang with Kate Spade. And mm, we know that, that Kate Spade committed suicide by hanging herself. And mm-hmm. that's a mistake. Yeah. And people boycotted Ulta because of it, you know, and, and wouldn't purchase from Ulta anymore. But honestly, like, this happens. And mm-hmm. Ulta, I think, handled it in a, in a very good way by just sending an, an apology email afterwards. Mm-hmm. There are so many examples I thought of even when I was just researching this episode. So I feel like this is a part one of multiple. Uh, Like many of our marketing made me do it episodes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because Tylenol and their arsenic disaster. And then I also thought of, this is what I learned about in school too, is uh, Pinto and their cars that were catching on fire. Mm. There are just so many examples of brand disasters that, that Kate Spade one is such a good, like, smaller disaster but i think the important thing is that the brands like you said make mistakes but that they did something about it afterwards whether it is just a basic apology email and taking ownership or getting to the root of what caused this so it can never happen again Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that i think everybody needs to accept their for you know forgive these brands for making a mistake i just think of you know the family members of the children who died in -in jack-in-the-box like Obviously, that's unforgivable of for course. those families. Yeah. It always depends on the severity, I think, of the mistake. Mm-hmm. And I think for anybody affected, you know, trust needs to be rebuilt. And it's up to the c- consumer to decide whether or not that's even possible, whether or not another chance is warranted. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think the brands need to give it time to, like... Um, not forcing it on the consumers, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and just being very respectful in that way as well. Good episode today. Yeah, I liked talking. I like talking about drama. Um, <laughs> what is what are we talking about next next time? 
next time we're talking, you know how we did our foodie marketing made me do at the foodie episode when we did that? I, I kind of remember. Yeah. <laughs> the German potato. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we are continuing that series. Uh, next up is marketing made me do it the fashion edition. And I feel like we're going to be talking about a little bit of drama there as well. The fashion edition. <laughs> I love fashion edition. I'm so excited. I wish, is, I wish we were pairing that episode with New York Fashion Week. Do you know when New York Fashion Week is? Next year, I, I think. I think it's in spring. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fine because we're going to have so much to talk about. Wasn't the episode. Paris Fashion Week just last month? Yeah, this is, this is thanks to the Paris Fashion Week. <laughs> An homage. Yeah, it's in February. We, we missed our window. And the Paris Fashion Week was it's September. Every- hey, 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 hey. I mean, okay, well, it ended on October 3rd. <laughs> Every week is Fashion Week here on Marketing Made Me Do It. <laughs> In our uh, yoga pants and hoodies. Yep. I mean, you're I'm more wearing, fashionable than I am right now. I'm wearing now. a jumper made out of recycled water bottles. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. Well, thanks for listening to this episode, everybody. Oh, it was great to, to have you. Um, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and join the conversation over on Instagram at Marketing Made Me Do It. And tell your friends. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Um, so that's the story of... Uh, sorry, I had a burp. And... Excuse me, I had the burp.